Our scripture for this morning is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to the end, verse 33. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 
But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, thank you, Heather. Good morning, family. Good to see everybody here this morning. Why don't we pray, and we'll get right down to work. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for giving us another day of, of life. We thank you for, um, at some point in the past, for most of us who have here, we can look and see where you, you brought us out of our rebellion against you. You brought us out from underneath the judgment that we were living under, uh, rescued us from our idolatry, and you gave us life in Jesus. And so we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for submitting to the Father's will and setting aside every good thing so you could pursue the better thing, your Father's fame through our rescue, and we thank you for living a perfect life in our place and for dying a substitutionary death on behalf of all those who would believe. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for bringing our hearts to life and giving us ears so we could actually hear our Father's voice for the very first time. And So we pray again, Holy Spirit, this morning that you would tune our ears to hear our Father's voice and that you would prepare our hearts so that we respond in humility and gratitude, uh, repenting of our sin and running back to our good Father. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So our series theme is Gospel Formed, Becoming Who We Are, a United Family in a Fractured City. And I wanted to just publicly say thank you to Ron, who is another one of our pastors. He preached in my place last week, so Ron, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to sit uh, and listen with everybody else. And I, I don't know about you, well, how many of you guys went home or right in the, in the gathering Googled Striper? Can I, just, can I just get a show of hands, please? Be brave. Okay. How many of you went to YouTube to listen to a Striper song? So I've got one, one honest person. All right. Did you make it all the way through the song? That's a, two or three. Two or three. Wow. We should all be giving a round of applause right now. Yeah. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I will forever now associate, forevermore associate 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Striper. They are inseparably bound together in my, in my mind, for better or worse. Today, here's the big idea of what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 10. We become who we are as we receive Jesus' warnings and reorient our lives around Jesus' definition of winning. Chapter 10 in two words, sorry, no striper or any comparable uh, you know, cultural reference to help us remember 1 Corinthians 10, but if you need to remember it in two words, we have warnings and winnings, or we could say gospel warnings and gospel winning. 
in verse 1, the very first word of verse 1, for, the word for clues us in that chapter 10 is not just starting from scratch. Like, hey, here's a new idea that I want to talk to you about. That word for is anchoring it back in chapter 9 and the conversation that Paul was unfolding there with us. There's an important connection. Uh, What's that connection, you might ask? Well, if we just kind of drop back to the end of chapter 9, we see in beginning in verse 23, here's what Paul says. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. So he's been talking about a gospel-formed life. He's saying, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. And then he invokes a metaphor for, for life. He's going to talk about running a race. And so he's obviously not talking about physically running. He's just using running a race as a metaphor for our lives. And so in verse 24, he says, guys, we all know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Only one wins the race. So run, or we could say, so live that you may obtain it. Run to win the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. And listen, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. They're going to sell their medal at a yard sale 10 years from now. But we in the gospel run for an imperishable prize, something of incredible value. And so Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's what Paul says at the end of chapter 9 that has to be connected with everything we're going to see in chapter 10. He says, live your Christian life like there is a prize to be won. Live like there is a prize to be be won. Run to win that prize. Live to win. And he would say, train with purpose. Run with purpose. No aimless living for a follower of Jesus. We discipline ourselves and exercise self-control so that we can live in this way. And Paul would say, live a life that is gospel-formed for the gospel and for the good of others. That's, that's where chapter 10 connects with chapter 9. And now, in chapter 10, we see gospel warnings and he'll kind of define a little more clearly for us what it looks like to run to win so the gospel warnings Paul's going to spend the first half of this chapter warning us so that we don't fail to run and so that we don't fail to finish the race he's giving us these warnings so that we will be able to live the kind of gospel formed life that he's been talking about all through first Corinthians that's that is the purpose of the warnings that we'll see And then he'll transition from warnings to gospel winning. In other words, he wants us to know with great clarity how Jesus defines winning in life. I think it's really interesting that just culturally, winning has become a trending word for us in social media. You might see like hashtag winning all the time. Well, Jesus has a definition of what it means to live a winning life. And we're going to see it very clearly in chapter 10. So again, the big idea, we become who we are as we receive Jesus' warning and reorient our lives around Jesus' definition of winning. So let's start with everybody's favorite, the warnings, gospel warnings. Here's where Paul begins in verse 1. You notice he, he wants us to learn from our family members who have gone before us. He says, hey, uh, brothers, we can understand that word. That word was used collectively when speaking to a crowd of men and women. So he's saying brothers and sisters. 
Look to your fathers. Literally, the word there in verse 1 would be um, that our fathers, our ancestors, were all under the cloud. Now, that's really interesting because in Corinth, the church there was made up primarily of Gentiles with no Jewish roots. And the fathers that he's about to talk about are uh, the, first, the, the first generation of Israel that experienced the exodus, like coming out of Egypt and being uh, rescued by God. So uh, they were not connected by blood, most of them, in any way, but he calls them their ancestors, their fathers, and he, he calls them to look to their lives. So we need to see in that two big ideas. One... Paul is all about this idea that the church is a family. Not like a family. When the Father rescues us and adopts us in, the church actually becomes our primary family. It trumps blood relation, if you will. Church is family. The other big idea that we need to see is uh, there is one people of God through all time. Sometimes we get confused when we're reading in the Old Testament and we're seeing um, Israel and uh, the Jews and Abraham, and, and then there, there almost seems like, is there a disconnect then? But like, so they failed and God set them aside and there's a better plan and it's the church now. It's a new people and separate, right? And then down the road, maybe Israel will, will come back. How's that all work? And Paul's clear all through the New Testament. Jesus is clear too. There is one people of God from the beginning of time until the end of time. One people of God. One family. And the Bible contains an unfolding and ongoing family story. So this is, this is our family in the Scripture. It's our family tree. It's our family story. And it's still being written. And so uh, we are being written into this ongoing story. But man, that's our family. All the way back there in the Old Testament. Those are, that's our people. That's our, that's our family. Now notice what Paul says about our family in verse 5. It's a little sobering. What does he say? God was not pleased with a few of them. God was not pleased with most of our family. Most of them. In verse 6, we see why um, Paul's bringing all of this up. He says in verse 6, they stand as examples for us. In verse 11, we see that their lives and the events of their lives, particularly their failures, have been written down for our instruction. That word instruction literally means warning. Like, I want you to learn from the failings of your family. And here's what Paul wants us to see. He's going to build this, he's going he's to paint this picture for us to show us that we in 2020 are absolutely no different than our family members that lived thousands of years before we are not more evolved we are not smarter we are not more advanced we we don't have a we're not different we have far more in common with them than we than we don't we are no different we are no better we are no better than they are we are no stronger now we may not know them personally but we are just like them. If you could sit down with somebody from this generation that Paul's talking about, the details of your lives may be a little bit different, but your hearts are the same. Hearts are the same. Same hearts. My, uh, my dad's dad passed several years back, and then just this spring, my dad's mom passed away. My grandmother passed away. And um, obviously, we could not travel back to the States. If we, we could leave Japan, but as immigrants, if we left Japan, we would not have been allowed to come back in. So we had to stay here. 
they lived in a log cabin in the mountains of Vermont. And I, so I grew up, that's the only home they ever lived in the whole time I knew them. And um, there were a few things in the home that my heart really connected with. There, I have a pair of my grandfather's flannel pajama pants. I wear them almost every night, even when it's July in Okinawa. I don't care. Uh, they've been patched and will be patched and hopefully last the rest of my life. I, have some co I had a coffee mug from my grandfather that broke in the move, so my dad got me one more this spring. Uh, so I can drink coffee, well, tea now, from the same mug that my, my grandfather drank from. And then this guy. This guy was always hanging on the wall in my grandparents' off, uh, study. This is my great, great, great grandfather. He was born in 1824 um, and lived a, a very, very long life. He was born and raised in Vermont and, and buried in Vermont. You see the resemblance, right? The same stately nose. And uh, I, what I love most about the photo is it's impossible to tell where his beard ends and where the fur coat begins. They're, it's inseparable. Um, we really don't look anything alike, I guess is all I really want to say to you. I know I'm related to him by blood, uh, but we really, we don't look anything alike. And I know, I've, I've tried to do some research, I know so little, I know he was a farmer, I know, I know how many kids he had and how many grandkids he had and stuff like that, but I know very little about his life, very little. But at the end of the day, what I know from the gospel is that his heart beat the same way my heart beat. We, we are the same. The, the details of our stories may be different. But that's, that's what Paul is saying here to them. We are no different. Our hearts are exactly the same. Look here, listen how he explains it in verses 1-4. to four. He says, look, all of them, all of our fathers were under the cloud. And by that he means, remember when Israel came out of Egypt? And God led them by, it was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And we know from the scripture that um, in Exodus 13 verses, I think 20 and 21 or so, it reads that the cloud went before them and never departed. Yeah, there it is right there. It went before them to lead them all along the way, to give them light so they could travel um, and it did not depart from the people. The only time it went behind the people, do you remember, was when the Egyptian army was coming out of Egypt to track them down, and God actually moved from in front of them to behind them to protect them from the army that was coming. So, the, so being under the cloud speaks of, of being in God's presence and experiencing His power on their behalf. So they were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. So again, speaking of the Exodus, the army had them pinned up against the Red Sea. Uh, God parted the waters and they marched safely through to rescue them from slavery into a new life. And Paul speaks of it this way. He says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Moses stands as a type of Christ who led his people to freedom. So in their association with Moses, in their experience with him, they were being placed into this family. That's what baptism means, to be placed into. And so they were identified with Moses and brought safely to freedom. And then he says they all ate the same spiritual food. You guys remember that God provided for this massive group of people in the wilderness by making manna rain from heaven? That's actually what the Bible says in Exodus 16.4. God says, I am about to make, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Okay, so that's the spiritual food he's talking about. And then all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank water that was provided for them by what Paul calls a spiritual rock that followed them. 
Now, you can read about that rock in Exodus 17 and and Numbers chapter 20. Other than that, we don't know a lot. Uh, Jewish rabbinic tradition actually has a name for this rock. They called it Miriam's Well. And they believed that the well was shaped like a rock and that it miraculously followed Israel through all of their wilderness wanderings, providing fresh water for them all the time. Now, we don't know if that's exactly how it happened or if in each place they went, God just provided for them miraculously. We did know He he did so from a rock on multiple occasions. So what Paul is saying is this. The Father accompanied Israel and provided a continual and miraculous source of water. Everywhere they went, God gave water from this rock. And then notice what Paul says. Christ was the rock. Christ was the source of their sustainment. They didn't even know Jesus by name yet, but Jesus was the source. He was, we come to know him as the living water. Like he gives living water in the New Testament. He's always done this for his people. So listen, all of that to say, that picture, just like the old man we just had this on the screen, these fathers of ours prefigure us. We are just like them, no better, no different. Even our experience with God has been the same. They were under the cloud of God's presence and power. We are under the cloud of God's presence and power. He always goes before us. He is behind us. He gives us light to see. He protects us. We are under the same cloud. We have passed through the same sea. We have been rescued from slavery into new life. They had an exodus experience where they were led out of slavery and given freedom. We have an exodus experience where we have been led out of slavery and we have been given freedom. They were baptized into Moses, who was a a foreshadowing of Jesus. We actually have been baptized into Jesus. Moses led them to freedom, foreshadowing Christ. Jesus leads us to freedom. Every week we celebrate that Jesus is the source of our nourishment and sustainment. That's why we care so much about practicing what we know as the Lord's Supper every week. And we're getting kind of tired of the Rona edition. Um, but we drink juice and eat, should be eating bread from the same loaf, right? Uh, just like it says here in the text. And we do this to remember that we are participants in Christ's blood and body. And, and the reminder is that In the same way that Jesus fed and satisfied their thirst, He feeds and satisfies our thirst. He does so physically. God is faithful to do this for every one of you physically. But what what Paul is getting at is He does this for us spiritually. He feeds our souls the nourishment that we need, and He satisfies our thirsty soul. So guys, this is all Paul saying. We are the same family, the same father, the same story, the same rescue, Everything's the same, okay? It's all the same. Now get to verse 5. The sameness continues, unfortunately, for us. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. Do you know how many people out of this original generation that were rescued out of Egypt and experienced all of this provision from God, do you know how many of them actually made it to the promised rest? How many? Do you remember? Two. Two. Well, maybe even one. We just know two names, Joshua and Caleb. We don't have as many details about Caleb, but Joshua and Caleb finish and they know rest. Two out of all of these hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Guys, that is a sobering number. But here's what we do with our hearts in these stories. We're all about the sameness while it's good. And then we encounter a detail like that and we're like, well, clearly we're different. 
But Paul's trying to make the argument, no, clearly we're still the same. What Paul's saying is most of them did not run well. Or they were part of a running family, but, but they never ran at all, or they never finished the race that God had given them to run. And so we ask the question, why? Why didn't they run well? Why didn't they finish the race that God gave them? Why, after receiving all of that goodness from God, would they, would they turn their backs on Him and forget Him and not run well? Well, we have the answers in verses 6 and 7. They desired evil. They desired evil, and then in verse 7 we read that the desire for that evil led them to be what the Bible calls an idolater, somebody who worships idols. Not necessarily an idol made out of wood. An idol can be something that exists in our heart that takes the rightful place of God. Uh, Luther would would define an idol this way, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Right? So that's an idol. Anything, anything can be an idol. They desired evil and they became idolaters. So idolaters is misplaced desire. Right? We, our hearts are created to desire Christ and to be satisfied in Him. So that's the rightful expression of our worship. Anytime we misdirect that desire or redirect that desire onto any other created thing, it's just automatically what the Bible would call idolatry. Right? That misplaced or uh, redirected desire, where we desire the gifts over the giver. Now here's the challenge. We know from the Bible that we all desire evil, okay? If you don't, every member of this family would agree that, I, that we have hearts that desire evil. However, desire does not have to become idolatry. The seeds of desire do not have to grow into into fully blossomed idolatry. The Gospel gives us a way out. We confess with God. In other words, we agree, yes, my heart desires evil. So we confess, and then we cry out to help to our dad, father. I see my heart. I see it desires evil, and I need help. Um, And then we we kill that desire. We kill the misplaced desire by, by not feeding it. We cut off the food sources for that misplaced desire. So we confess, we cry out for help, and we kill that desire. But this generation of God's people didn't confess. They didn't agree with God. They did not cry out for help. And they did not kill the misplaced desire. Rather, they fed their misplaced desires. And look at what verse 7 says. The people... Moses, or Paul just kind of summarizes it so, so simply. He quotes the Old Testament. And he says, The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. In other words, they were more than glad to receive from God. They took the food. They took the drink. They took everything that God provided for them, and then they stood up, turned their back, and did whatever they wanted to do. Um, I think In-N-Out is the most appropriately named restaurant. I don't really want to speak to the quality of the food. We won't get into that argument right now. Although I did just see that a new In-N-Out opened up in Colorado, and people were waiting in line for upwards of 14 hours like it was Black Friday or something. And no joke, like just go, go Google it. Like they're sitting and camping out for 14 hours to get themselves a subpar In-N-Out burger. But now you know. <laughs> Yeah, fighting words. We'll fight when it's all done. Um, but I'll win because you've been eating In-N-Out. Um, so, guys, In-N-Out describes like how they treated their relationship with God. Like they were in, they got what they needed, and they were out. Like that was, that was kind of it. They were just in and out. They, they got what they needed. We could say it this way. God when I'm in need, me when I'm in want. Like 
I go to God when I need something and I'm angry when I don't, when I don't get it. Like, where's God? Why doesn't God meet my needs? He's not kind. He's not good. But as long as I have what I need, I just do what I want. Like, it's me the rest of the time. They, we could say it this way. They lived for self-gratification rather than living from gratitude. They were living for self-gratification rather than living from gratitude. Guys, Paul's saying, family, our parents struggled really, really hard in this in three key areas that we are likely to repeat. And then he, gives, he lists them for us. The first one is sexual immorality. We won't hit this one hard this week because you know that for like three consecutive weeks we were all over that like white on rice. So we, we spent our time there. Sexual immorality. They had adopted the cultural uh, sexual ethic of their day and just completely turned from God in this area of their lives. Then Paul gives us two more areas though. He says they, they put Christ to the test. And if if you look back, what we see, what they were doing when they put Christ to the test is they were complaining about what he had given them. They were complaining about what God had given them. And uh, to quote, here's exactly what they said. They said, we loathe this worthless food. We loathe it. We hate what God is giving to us. So they put Christ to the test. And then he says they were also grumbling. In other words, they were complaining about what Jesus had, had not given to them. So th- not only were they complaining about what God had given to them, in their grumbling they were complaining about what they believed they deserved but God had not given to them. And so in their own words they said, let's forget Moses, let's choose a different leader, and let's go back. Back to Egypt, back to slavery. So Paul's saying these three expressions of idolatry absolutely destroyed our parents. Destroyed them. Look at this in verse 5. He says they were overthrown in the wilderness. That word overthrown means there were bodies strewn all over the wilderness. And guys, for us, wilderness is a really good word for the life that we live between our rescue and our ultimate rest, right? So Jesus has brought us out just like them. He brought us through an exodus. We're, we're, We're rescued and we're on our way home to our ultimate rest in Jesus. And in between is a whole lot of wilderness just like our forefathers. And their bodies were strewn all over the wilderness. And that wilderness is a really good metaphor for, I mean, for 2020, for life itself. For sexual immorality, Paul says that 23,000 of them fell, or that word fell means died in a single day. Guys, I know we've hit that hard over the last couple weeks, but that is still a reality. Thousands of Christians fall daily, repeatedly, every day in the rebellion of sexual immorality. And it's not just us average people that the world doesn't know about. It's really high-profile pastors that are known globally. Between the last time I preached a sermon on sexual immorality and the time we read this text this morning, Carl Lentz, who's was a pastor of a really high-profile church in New York City, Hillsong. The dude led Justin Bieber to Jesus and was discipling him. Like that guy, just known globally. He's no longer the pastor there, and it's all because of sexual immorality. Guys, it happens every day. We're, we're fooling ourselves if we think this is not our own story. And it's not about Carl Lentz or judging him. We hope and pray for his healing and his restoration and for the healing and restoration of his family and his church family. It's a sad reality. And Paul says in their complaining, they were destroyed by serpents. We know from the Old Testament that God sent serpents to, in, in judgment, a bunch of haboos. Um, 
they were grumbling and so they were destroyed by the destroyer. God sent a, a, a messenger, an angel, a, somebody who would destroy them for their grumbling. And here's why Paul's invoking all of that. Here's, here's the heart of the warning. He's saying, idolatry destroys us, guys. It destroys us. Now, there's one obvious kind of like element of idolatry. Like, we get it, like sexual immorality. All right, I got it, idolatry. But complaining and grumbling, that's idolatry. They, think of it this way. Complaining and grumbling are symptoms of an idolatrous heart. Like if I'm complaining, it's a symptom. You've got the Rona. Like you've you got to go get the test. Like it, it is a clear symptom there's idolatry in the heart. Because I'm not getting what I think I deserve, right? Or that I've gotten something that I think I deserve better. So they're symptoms of an idolatrous heart. And so Paul's saying, guys, listen, these things happen to them as an example to us. Our Therefore, our instruction, our warning, I may look different, but my heart is the same. And so it brings him right to the middle here in verses 12 to 13, where he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That word take heed means to step back and take an honest look and to actually see. We have a profound ability to do that in our own lives. We have a profound inability to step back and be objective and see clearly and look into our own hearts and be like, yeah, that's my grumbling, that, here's my idol. My complaining, here's my idol. Yes, sexual immorality, one of my idols. We have a profound inability to do that in our own lives. You know who we don't have a profound inability to do that with? Our parents. I will never be like my dad. We can list off all my dad's idols. You can list your mom's, all her idols. And you're like, I will never be like her. We say that for about 15 years. And then one morning you wake up and you look yourself in the mirror and you look at your own life and you're like, dang, I'm my mom. Like, I, I really am my dad. Like, we are the same person. And th I think that's why Paul is helping us look at our family members, this first generation that came through the Exodus, because we can look at them and be like, man, idol, 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 idol. Look at that destruction in a way that we can't do it for ourselves. And Paul's saying, that's you. This passage is your mirror. It's hanging on the wall, and you're looking at your own reflection in the story. This isn't about them. It's about us. So take heed lest you fall. In other words, you will fall if you don't take heed. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Just Paul's another way of saying we're not different, we're not better. Our parents struggled, and in the same three areas they struggled, sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, grumbling, complaining. My heart's going to... It is going to struggle in the same ways. I'm not different. I'm not better. It's common to man. So family, let's be humble about this. Let's be very humble about this and receive these warnings. This is us. But look at this gospel hope in the middle of the warning. The second half of verse 13. These three words right in the middle of the chapter it says God is faithful. That's really good news because the entire chapter is about faithless kids. How my dad was a faithless kid and my grandfather was a faithless kid and my great-great-grandfather, they just look at how he was a faithless kid. All generations back to this first generation that experienced the exodus. Like if anybody should have been faithful... If you were miraculously rescued out, imagine, imagine the East China Sea parts. You don't have to take the rotator. You can walk back to the States, right? Like imagine if God did all that crazy stuff for you, you'd never rebel. Guys, this story tells us that our hearts will still have the idols. They did and we do. My sons will be faithless sons. But it says that my faithful father will not let me be tempted beyond my ability. That's really good news um, because that's just really good news for all of us. And with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
Guys, the Father is the hero of our family. None of us are. We, as followers of Jesus, what the Gospel gives us the freedom to do is to raise our hands and say, I am naturally a faithless son. I am naturally a faithless daughter, but I have a faithful dad. And that's why I'm in the family, and that's why I stay in the family. My faith doesn't keep me in. My Father's faithfulness keeps me in. He's the faithful one, and Jesus is the faithful Son in our place. I am faithless and needy. He is faithful and loves to give. So no pretending in this family. Like This is your fair warning. The next time you walk through the doors, just know that you're walking through the doors with a family that gladly self-identifies with, yes, we are our Father's faithless kids. No heroes here, no pretending. We learn to confess, cry for help, and to kill those idols. And our Father never fails. I fail all the time as a dad. I had two slow motion failures this week. So vivid. Three nights ago, I'm sitting at the dinner table with Owen. He and I are the last at the table. And um, we're both kind of rocking back in our chairs, like having a man talk. Just me and my three going on 19-year-old son, like just getting after it. And you know that moment where your child's chair will tip to that point where you're like, well, it's pretty much breaking point right there. No, that is breaking point. And he knew it too. Like you could see his whole body tense up when he knew it wasn't coming back. It was going the other way. But in that moment as human beings, unless you're a superhero, which I'm not, your body freezes. Like you can actually process in your mind what you're about to witness and be powerless to do anything about it at the same time. Sure enough, I just pro- like I'm, I'm about to watch my son crack his head on the floor. And then I watched my son crack his head on the floor. Um, and then after a few seconds went by, I got, like, I told his mom and she came in and and took it. I cuddled him. I cuddled him. I cuddled him. The second one was just two nights ago or yeah, I got home from work and our routine is we race up and down our street. Owen gets on my motorcycle with a helmet most of the time when mom's home and we race Johnny up and down the street on his bike. And so Owen and I had won again and we park in the driveway And Johnny comes whipping down the road like this wide arc. You can tell it's not going to end well. The arc is too wide and his speed is too great. And sure enough, he hits the van. But I'm sitting right here. Like I have time to reach. Again, my brain processes like this is going to be gnarly. And I just, I can't physically do anything. And he roll, he hits his head and his shoulder and everything. He just wrecks and is destroyed. I know it's like funny, but not at the same time, is it? probably overkill on the stories but guys like that's the point like that's who we are as people it's just it's who we are but these three words in the middle of the text says that that is not who our dad is he is the faithful dad he never has that moment where he freezes and processes what we're about to do ever in all my faithlessness he provides a way for my escape and here's the way and here's the second half and the the second idea we, we see the warnings and now here's the gospel winning and we see that winning begins with running. Winning in the gospel always begins with running. Like smart running based upon my parents' failures and my grandparents' failures and the failures of my parents that I see here in this chapter, right? It's like my father is saying, son, here is what tripped up your pops and it tripped up your grandfather and it's going to trip you up too. You probably lived through their tripping up and it's probably wounded your life. Run! 
I am a faithful father in all your faithlessness, and I'm giving you a way out. Here is your way. Follow me and run to freedom. Run from idolatry. Run from your sexual immorality. Run from your complaining. Don't feed it. Run from grumbling. Run from it. Confess that you do it. Here's what running means. We confess, we cry out for help, and we kill it. That's all Paul means by running. We confess, yes, this is my heart. I cry out to my dad for help. Dad, I need your help again and again and again daily. And we work with him to kill that idolatry. And Paul's like, look, I'm not trying to make this a riddle for you. We tend to complicate the Bible way too much. And look in verse 15. Paul's just saying, look, this isn't a riddle. I speak to sensible people. Um, Judge for yourselves. Here's what I'm saying. Verse 16 to 21. Here he's kind of like breaking it down for us. He says, we are participants in the body and blood of Jesus. That's what we celebrate every week through communion. We, We look back to the cross and we understand that by faith we participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's our only hope. That I don't belong to myself, but that I belong to Jesus in life and death. So I've participated by faith in his substitutionary life on my behalf on his substitutionary death in my place, and I'm raised to a newness of life with Christ. So we're participants. We look back to the cross. Israel, our fathers and mothers, they were participants in the body and blood of Jesus too. That's what he's talking about when they're participants at the altar. But we look back when they participated in their sacrifices, they were looking forward to the cross. They just didn't know the details and they didn't know the name of their rescuing king. We know the details and we know the name of our king. And now Paul says in the middle of this paragraph, he said, listen, idolatry is misdirected participation. When we are idolatrous, instead of participating in the life of Jesus, we are misdirecting that to participate in the life of demons. Like, it's right there. Look at that. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. That's what idolatry is. So Paul's like, all right, baseline Christianity, baseline follower of Jesus stuff here. We don't participate with with demons anymore. I want you to be participants fully in the life of Christ. Now, we know from our previous chapters that Paul's talking about the festivities in the pagan temples and the meat offered to idols, but there's a larger principle at work. It has to do with all of our idolatry, not just the meat offered to idols, but our complaining, our grumbling, our sexual immorality. And so what Paul's saying is where your fathers failed, I don't want you to fail, and you don't have to fail because you have a faithful father, not because you are the faithful son or daughter. And then Paul says, look, you can't have both Jesus and your idols anyway. They couldn't. They, they tried. You can't drink the cup of the Lord. You can't do that and have the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Um, our fathers tried, and they were destroyed. That's Paul's point. Idolatry always kills us. It always kills us. Idolatry always kills. You cannot have Jesus and your idols. You will be destroyed. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This can't be done. One participation will win over time. One will be proven true. Paul's not saying that we physically can't do it. We may come in here every week after a week long like participating in our idolatry, which we, we understand we're misdirecting our, our worship, and rather than giving it to Christ now, we're somehow are participating there there are demons involved with all of our our, all of our idols 
We can't, we can't be true participants that way all week long and then come in here and truly participate in the life and blood of Jesus. We can't. One participation will be proven true over time and one will be true proven false. But they don't exist together truly at the same time. But guys, in this verse, in verse 21, we also see this is how we kill idolatry in our hearts. If he's saying you, you can't satisfy your soul in Jesus and satisfy your soul through idols at the same time, it can't physically be done. This is good news of the gospel for us right in the middle of these warnings. This is, our, this is how we kill idolatry in our hearts. We could state that positively. Paul's telling us, dude, you struggle hard with these idols. If you will satisfy your soul in Jesus instead, your appetites for these idols will be diminished. That is how you kill the appetite that you have for idols. You satisfy your soul increasingly in Jesus. You can't, satis- you, you can't satisfy your soul in both places. Then he asks, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? And the answer to those, they're both, they're both no's. They're, he's leading us to say, no, no, we're not stronger than God. And no, we should not provoke the Lord to jealousy. But again, guys, we're a family of confessors, not pretenders. So we confess together, man, every day, the desire that I have in my heart for evil leads me to be an idolater if I'm not rehearsing the gospel and killing it. And I, I am... I am provoking the Lord to jealousy, but I have a faithful father in all of my faithlessness. So to summarize so far, to summarize so far, our father warns us, idolatry killed your parents and it will kill you too, but our good father provides a way of escape. That way of escape, winning, if you will, winning begins with running and running is sustained by satisfying your soul in Jesus. That's the only way we keep running, Christian faith, a soul that is satisfied in Jesus. The minute that dries up, we fall out. We stop running. And just in the, in the closing paragraph, Paul's going to help us see that this is not some abstract thing. It's not theology that's disconnected from life. And Paul's going to help us see how this is normal, everyday, day-to-day stuff. It's going to lead us to reorient our definition of winning right here off of culture and onto Jesus. Look in verse 23. That's the culture's definition of winning. He invokes this phrase that he's kind of come at a couple cha- or a couple times in this book. He says, all things are lawful. He's just quoting them. Like this is how they were living. All things are lawful for me. I'm free. I can do what I want. The gospel's set me free. But who's at the center of that claim? Like who's at the center? Me. I am. My desires. Right? That's, that is our culture's definition of winning and that is our rebel heart's definition of winning. In verse 24, he gives us Jesus' definition of winning. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Who's at the center now? This is a trick question. Who does it look, as, who does it look like is at the center? Our neighbor. But who's really at the center if we're living this way? Our Father, right? So in exchanging our rebel definition of winning, I have to be extracted from the center of my life. That's what happens. That's what happens when we become followers of Jesus. You, the gospel, and it's, it's painful, but it's also liberating. Like it is, it is your exodus. It is you coming out of bondage and going through the Red Sea. Like it's a painful extraction, but for the first time that your dad reaches down and rips you out of the center of your life, it's the first time that you actually know life and freedom the way you were created for. That's your exodus. 
and in its place, now Jesus is at the center of, of your life, and the way that you know that Christ is at the center of your life is if 24, verse 24 is increasingly becoming your ethos, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Now we know that their issue was meat offered to idols, and we looked at, at that in depth a few weeks ago. Paul did not want them to knowingly participate in any ceremony that was in the worship of an idol. They, 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 knew, they know this now. But they still had to live life in a pagan city. They still had to buy food. They still had to go out to eat. Um, well, there's something you don't have to do, so you don't have to worry about that one. Um, they had to accept invitations into pagan homes. They still had to build relationships, and they had to do all of this in a culture that was saturated with idols. And guys, we can relate with that too, because Jesus rescues us. He doesn't call you out of the world. In fact, he sends you right back in, like, all right, there you go, son, like, go right back in. I rescued you from all this idolatry. Now I want you to go and be a light in all of this darkness. So we're just like them. Got to live life. You got to buy food. Someday you'll go out to eat again, right? You got to accept invitations into your, your non-Christian friends' homes, all of these things. And so Paul says in verse 25, look, the only way you can do this is you got to eat whatever's sold in the marketplace. Don't raise any questions for conscience sake. Don't walk into the movie theater looking for the sign that says, don't bring your snacks in here. Like, well, that's a little bit of a stretch, but that was my philosophy in life for a long time. But don't, don't live life and you've got to understand, you've got to assume that this, this world is just saturated with idols, right? But you have been given freedom in the gospel. And so you don't, you don't raise questions for conscience sake. Don't ask the questions, just assume, live life. And look at verse 26, it all belongs to God anyway. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. So receive what he gives you with gratitude. Receive it, the gospel sets you free. But here's how our new ethos changes the way that we live. It's not all about me. If someone else will struggle, if somebody says, hey man, you, you can't do that because of this, if we understand it's gonna um, cause their conscience to struggle, we don't eat. We don't participate. Not that his conscience rules us. It's not what Paul's saying. We're not ruled by the consciences of other people. But that we are more concerned about his conscience than my own freedom. Remember from a couple weeks ago, another person's flourishing in Jesus is greater than my freedom in the gospel. The gospel leads us to willingly lay that down for another person's good. So this is not complicated, is it? We tend to overcomplicate these things. It's not complicated, but this is not our issue, meat offered to idols, but there are plenty of parallels for us, right? We, could, we have work to fill in the blank over the last couple weeks. Uh, masks would be probably a reasonable parallel for us in 2020. Um, alcohol consumption, we've talked about that. Um, the music that we listen to alone or around other people. Um, food sourcing is kind of a, a common thing nowadays, like as we grow to know people for our friends who care deeply about where food is sourced from or what type of, like just as we grow to know and understand these people, these things about the people we know and love and live in community with, that we are willing to set aside all of our freedoms for the flourishing of other people. And Jesus just kind of brings it home. Like he's going to focus the camera for us one last time at the end of this chapter so that we have this clear picture of what, it, what he means by winning. Like Jesus' definition of winning. When we're living a purposeful, gospel-formed life, what, what that's actually going to look like. And look at in verse 31. He said, here it is. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what you do for God's glory. So that's my new starting point. Now that I've been extracted from the center, it's not my glory. Jesus is at the center. So the, the baseline now for all of my decisions is simply, will this bring 
Will this increase the favor of God's reputation among the people that I know? Right? That's my baseline for, for decisions. Now, my, the second step in my decision-making is verse 32. I don't give any offense to my Jewish neighbors. I don't give any offense to my Gentile neighbors. And I don't knowingly give offense to anybody in God's family, the family that I'm a part of. In other words, Paul's saying, I live in a diverse neighborhood. I have diverse neighbors. I will do whatever I can to know them and love them so I won't knowingly offend any one of them because their flourishing in Jesus is greater than my freedoms. I will seek my neighbor's advantage over my own. That is a gospel-winning life. Ultimately, Paul says, so they come to know Jesus as I do, but even if they don't, this is still what love looks like. It's not a condition. I don't live this way towards you only if you're going to become a Christian, and if you're not, like, forget it. I'm just going to do me. Like, this is what love looks like. So whether or not you become a follower of Jesus, this is what my Father calls me to as I live in community with you. And then Paul just wraps it up. Um, 11.1 should be part of chapter 10. That's an unfortunate like, chapter break right there. Verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul just simply says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Guys, Jesus set aside every good thing that He had to do the better thing. The King made Himself a servant. He practiced self-sacrifice for the Father's fame and our good. That's what winning looks like. Setting aside every good thing to do the one better thing. Living for the Father's fame and for your good. That's gospel winning. That is a gospel formed life. That is living from gratitude, not for self-gratification. That is winning. So family, we will become who we are only as we receive Jesus' warnings. It's not about my, my grandparents or my parents. Like This is about me. And as we work to reorient our lives around Jesus' definition of winning. Zachary, another one of our pastors, led for us to, to, to open the worship gathering. He's going to come now and lead us in a, in a prayer of confession as a family. Um, as a family, we have stuff to confess from this chapter. And I'm sure if you're like me, you have some personal stuff to confess to your dad as well. So let's just be led by Zach. Let's confess. Let's cry out for help. And let's renew our commitment to kill the idolatry that exists in our heart. Not through our own effort, but through the work of the Spirit.